0: I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but only beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. We are in for such a powerful episode today. My guest is Reagan Chastain and I cannot tell you what a beautiful soul, powerful human being Reagan is. I am actually not going to say too much about this episode because Reagan has so much to say and speaks to all of it beautifully that I don't even think I could do it justice. We are going to cover, I'll tell you a few topics, how to deal with fat phobia within the healthcare system by being your own medical advocate. Also that it shouldn't even have to be this way, but it is. And Reagan talks about the fact that there is hope. People are activists and they are doing beautiful work. Also talked about how due to weight stigma, Reagan was praised when she was in the worst part of her eating disorder. When she began to gain weight back, every one of those comments became an insult. As opposed to the quote-unquote compliment for her losing weight, having discipline, doing all the things that we're quote-unquote supposed to do. Reagan says, and I can't agree with this more, there is no diet that is going to move you out of an oppressed group. Also, every diet is the risk of developing or relapsing into an eating disorder. I said I wasn't going to say a lot, but couldn't help myself. All right, everyone, pay attention. It's a great show. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I don't know what it is about our guest right now, Reagan Chastain. And I said to Reagan when she came on before we started the podcast, I'm feeling a little tearful. I'm like a fangirl. So I might get emotional during this this episode. Reagan's laughing at me right now. So Reagan, say hello to everyone.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) What a way to introduce, huh? So anyway, again, very, very excited to have Reagan on the show. So Reagan, can you tell the listeners about all the amazing work that you do with the activism, with Dancing with, you know, triathlons. I like, where do we begin?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, professionally, what I do is speak and write full time. And so my general topics are size acceptance, health at every size, and uh, weight stigma. And my specific areas of expertise are weight stigma in medical care and eating disorders and fitness community. Um, and then uh, explaining research. My background is uh, research and statistical analysis. And so I do a lot of like explaining research around weight and health. Uh, and then uh, teaching people how to talk back to fat phobia, which is one of my favorite things, whether it's at the doctor's office or family and friends. So those are the kind of niche areas where I work. Oh, and I've been doing a lot of corporate wellness stuff lately. So that's that's what I do professionally. And then for fun, I like to do fitnessy things. So I always preface that by saying that fitness by any definition, not an obligation, not a barometer of worthiness, not entirely within our control. Uh, Doing fitnessy stuff doesn't make us better or worse. I've done both. So I can tell you for sure that, completing a marathon and having a Netflix marathon are morally equivalent activities. And if you go slow enough, they're both a way to waste an entire Sunday. So yeah, I was a former ballroom dancer. Um, I'm currently training for a iron distance triathlon. So that's kind of my hobbies.
0: That's a hobby. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: I'm sorry, everyone. That just, I, wow, that was super rude. It's just obviously an Ironman is not a hobby for me. I'm more like what you said, the Netflix marathon. That's what fits me. So, but Regan, all kidding aside, like, how did you come to this work? Most of us, Mote myself, most of the people on the show come to this work, obviously because of our own experiences. So what is it that you experienced? It, it sounds like you must have experienced a lot of stuff with fat phobia in the medical field. Sounds like you're talking about stuff in the corporate world. So what brought you particularly to this activism?
1: I, my sort of journey started, I, uh, developed an eating disorder between the senior year of high school and, or sorry, between yeah, my senior year of high school and freshman year of college. And I was in a larger body when I sort of developed the eating disorder. And I was lucky in that my recovery was pretty fast. It was an atypical recovery, but I recovered still into a larger body. And so I was in treatment for an eating disorder and still being prescribed diets by the doctors I was working with. And I remember one of the doctors really clearly saying, I mean, don't go crazy like you did before, but you're just a heavier person naturally. So this is something you're going to worry about your entire life.
0: Listeners can't see me right now, but I'm like banging my hand against my forehead.
1: Yeah. I I can't imagine something worse to have said to somebody with an eating disorder, right? It's the exact opposite. And so doctors were prescribing me diets. And um, I later, Deb Bergard was the person who really couched this for me. Like they were prescribing me the exact same behaviors that my eating disorder team was trying to get me to stop. And I was again, lucky, lucky, lucky that I didn't go into a full relapse, but I spent years uh, sort of yo-yo dieting, right? I would lose weight short-term, gain it back long-term, which I learned was the experience everybody had. And so finally I decided like, I've never read any of the studies about these diets. And so I've had about enough. I'm going to find the diet that works the best right? I'm going to read all the studies, going to do my own literature review and that's the diet I'm going to do. And so I read all the studies and then I was so confused and shocked. I read them all again. And I was like doing the calculations by hand because what I found was that not a single person, not a single study uh, had more than a tiny fraction of people who had any kind of long-term weight loss success. And success was often defined as five pound weight loss. It's was like, not for nothing, I could lose five pounds right now with a haircut and a luffa. I don't need two years of any kind of diet intervention to get that done. Um, And every diet is, you know, a risk of developing or relapsing into an eating disorder. So, like, why am I taking all this risk for what is likely no reward? And so that was how I originally started to do the research and found Health at Every Size. And this was back in the day, so like I had to, you know, I was using like the card catalog, like not the card catalog. It wasn't that old, but like the internet wasn't a big thing yet. So I was like having to go to different places to get these studies, and it was hard to do the research back then. I'm glad it's easier now.
0: Mm-hmm. I think something I I pick up on words. There's there's words that I say. Oh my gosh! I want to I want to focus on that. There's something that that doctor said to you that sends shivers up my spine. They said to you, your weight is something you're going to have to worry about, worry for the rest of your life. As First of all, that's a judgment. That's coming from that person's perception of what a body is supposed to look like. And that is coming from an authority, which is a medical person. I just, I don't know if you have anything more to add to it or if I'm just pointing out something that's so small that you're like, you're making a big deal out of this, Karen.
1: No, you're exactly right. So, I mean, like he got to the point, but then he just kept running past it because he said, you're a naturally bigger person. That's true. But then he ran right past it to tell me that what that meant was that I had to worry my whole life you know, and focus on trying to be a smaller person than I was naturally, which doesn't make sense based on the research or science. And so I think part of, I talk a lot um, about like, because I have a lot of privilege as a white woman, relatively able-bodied, cisgender, um, you know, in a lot of ways I have privilege. But in terms of personality privilege, I've always like from birth really questioned authority. And while that made my mother's life very difficult, she nurtured that in me despite how i mean my mom is i got i won the lottery of moms um but yeah so i all like that thing that i had always had and that had been nurtured in me allowed me to question that instead of saying okay like this is my path forever and i can never question it it's and i want to sorry oh i'm sorry no no no
0: i want to point out how rare that message is to people to say it's okay to question We are our most vulnerable when we're sitting in a doctor's office in a Johnny, when somebody comes in and, you know, talking to us. So, so it's so, it's just a beautiful message that you did receive, which is no, it's okay. You can question authority
1: it's really helped and sort of led to this career path. I I teach on both sides of it. So I teach people how to be their own medical advocate, how to deal with fat phobia within healthcare, but I also teach healthcare providers. And so I've spoken to entire conferences of physicians, allied healthcare providers. And so I get to like work on both sides of that issue. But the thing that allowed me to do that was my ability to say, this person could be absolutely wrong. And I have the right to start asking questions and start doing my own research. And, you know, that's valid. What kind of
0: pushback have you gotten from the medical field? Because I I have to imagine. And by the way, this is not a podcast to, you know, criticize medical fields or whatnot. But this is a huge problem in the medical community. What kind of pushback did you get?
1: Yeah, to preface it, I mean these are folks who are steeped in weight stigma. They're taught it in medical school. You know, they're taught, they often don't have the, um, the time or necessarily the research analysis skills to really look at the studies that they're basing their uh, treatment protocols on that are in peer reviewed journals, which is a whole other issue. So, and a lot of times, especially with doctors, doctors can have a hard time hearing something from someone who's not a doctor. And so when I do talk to physicians, I can, I almost always, that first hand that shoots up into the sky, that's somebody who's going to ask me, well, where did you go to medical school? And my answer is always, well, I didn't. If I did, I'd probably be making the same mistakes that you are. Like I had to go outside of that system to get this information and that's why I'm trying to bring it to you. And they're not always happy with the answer, but it at least explains the situation a little bit.
0: But I also love that, and and that is activism work, which is going outside of the system to get the information. I also want to say, Reagan, it's also tremendous dedication and devotion that you have. I mean, it doesn't sound like you were just like, I'm just going to read an article outside of the medical journals and then gather all this information. Like I heard you say, you know, research and everything that you've done. I mean, I I... I've often said to clients, well, let me take a step back. How did you get the emotional energy and courage? And as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, isn't this ludicrous that we have to have courage to speak out about our bodies? But you had to, how did you, how did that come about?
1: That's another like personality privilege thing. Like I led my first protest in kindergarten. Like, it's always anything that I have seen, that I saw, like, just naturally that I felt like was unfair, triggered an emotional response in me, like, I have to do something about that. And as I've gotten older and realized, like, how much privilege I have in terms of, you know, the education I've been able to receive in terms of the privileges we talked about before, uh, I'm like, I have the skills to do this. And so I should do more, as much work as I can, because I have the privilege and I have the skills and I can, there's a difference that I can make here. So that has always been something. I mean, as a public speaker, there are people who heroically overcome a terror of public speaking to do activism work. I am not that person.
0: You are not that person, but I did listen to some of your previous podcasts that that you were a guest on. And I would like to bring something up that I I was I I was in utter shock that there are times when you've given talks where there have been death threats against you that is the degree of fat phobia that we're talking about and I think you said and forgive me if I get it incorrectly if I didn't stand up and still speak those death threats were never going to go away I, what is it that you said I apologize I just I was like what the fuck? Death threats over a body type and saying, I belong. And here's why.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised too. Um, I became a bit of a target for some of the Reddit fat hate groups. And then when they disbanded the biggest one, which had 150,000 people, they created a group just for me. <laughs> there are like 6,000, almost 6,500 people in it, I think now. And like, I'm the only thing they talk about. My mom found it accidentally and she's like, do you know that this is a thing? And I was like, I do. And she said, I don't know whether I should be horrified or impressed. And I was like, same, same So yeah. So for years, every time I went on stage, I would get these emails that were like, generally, you know, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to shoot you, whatever. And then, but we had a couple of times where it was like, I'm coming to Name the place at the time you're there, and I'm going to shoot you when you're on stage. And so I, I remember at one university, we, we let the authorities know, and they said, oh, well, you know, this is a, an area where people can open carry. So, you know, they, we can't do anything until they pull the trigger, but definitely keep the email because it'll be good evidence. And I was like, thanks for that. But what I realized was, first of all, a lot of people sacrifice a lot more than me for civil rights work. And so I, what I realized was that whatever will stop me, that's what they're going to do, right? So if generally who constantly harassing me stops me, you know, every single day on every single, you know, social media outlet that I have on my YouTube channel, on my blog, in my email, I get troll comments every day. And I have for, you know, since I started my blog. Um, So if that stopped me, then that's what they would do. But when that didn't stop me, they escalated, they escalated, and finally they escalated to this. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't know how credible it was, but I knew that I had to make a decision. And my decision was, I'm going to do this. And like, if this happens, then it's, it was, it's an honorable way to go. You know, a a lot of my heroes died that way. Um, And if it doesn't, then it shows like, this is also not going to stop me. And then, and I think that's what finally shut it down is they didn't have any intention to follow through. It was, you know, an act of creating terror. They wanted me to be so scared that I wouldn't do what I wanted to do. And that is, a, that's not going to happen.
0: I, the, the whole story, the whole narrative of what you just said is it, it, it I'm going to use a very non-clinical term, blows me out of the water. Are you kidding me? What is happening to our world that we get so critical or whatever? I don't even know what it is. So angry over somebody's body. And, and again, I don't want to blow this out of proportion, but death threats just by giving a talk.
1: Yeah. It, you know, the idea that, and to be clear, other communities have been dealing with this for a lot longer and at a lot higher rate. Um, But for me, like within fat activism, the idea that telling people you have an option to love your body as it is, telling people you have an option to pursue health outside of weight loss, like the fact that that is something that some people get so upset about that they're willing to issue a death threat kind of tells us where that issue is in our culture how like, how that's become a bit of, you know, kind of a pinpoint issue that people are like, this is worth, you know, threatening people over. There's such a a community of people who have apparently like a lot of free time, like a lot of free time where like, this is what they do is they try to make fat people who love themselves, hate themselves. And it's, Awful and it's inexcusable and it harms so many people. And I also want to be clear like, there are people who get trolled more than me for sure. There, I'm not, I'm also not like a typical experience. So I never want people to be scared of speaking out because they're going to get the kind of trolling that I get because it's not likely. I came along at a time when like that was being really whipped up and Reddit was, you know really more of a thing. Uh, So I want to be clear about that too. Like becoming a fat activist and speaking out for yourself in whatever way doesn't necessarily mean you're going to experience that, but you might. And then you have to make the decision, like, how do I want to deal with that? And whatever decision people make is totally valid.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you think is going on in the eating disorder community with regards to acceptance of health at every size, you know, working with weight stigma. What is happening in our community?
1: We're making progress. The eating disorder community has a history of exclusion that's really inexcusable. It has a history of excluding uh, people of color. It has a history of excluding uh, disabled people. It's, you know, if you weren't sort of a thin white person with anorexia, you had a real hard time getting attention uh, for a long time in the eating disorder community. And that's gradually changing. Uh, one of the problems, I, you know, within eating disorder community with weight stigma is that some people in, in eating disorder community are profiting from weight stigma. So there are people who have an eating disorder treatment facility and a weight, quote unquote, management facility, or worse, a, you know, a, quote unquote, bariatric surgery, which I would call stomach amputation center, and so they are literally prescribing to one group of people, again, as Deb Burgard said, prescribing to one group of people the same thing that they're trying to get another group of people to stop. And even to, to the point of surgically inducing that in people. So there's a tremendous amount of weight stigma within eating disorder culture. And in some folks, it's just well-meaning. You know, they, there's a lot of inaccuracy around the research of weight and health. And what we've been taught isn't true. And I was talking, John Robeson, who's one of the people who founded this movement, who's uh, like, he's got a PhD, three master's degrees. He, you know, is a college professor, um, super learned guy. And we were talking, because we both get uh, asked to do debates with people. And so the other person or side, because often it's six people with one view and then us on the other side, but they will get, all they have to say is everything you've heard is true. Where we have to say everything you know is wrong. Like, let's start again. And so it's a much more difficult case to make. And people have to be willing to really question things that they have believed are absolute scientific truth. And so that's a really hard thing for people to do. And so within eating disorders community, that's a struggle that we have is getting people to, you know, because people do things that are incredibly uh, fat phobic and, you know, weight stigma based and harmful, like telling people, I promise in your recovery, you won't get fat right? Or telling people, you know, well, I mean, I'm glad you've recovered, but now you're going too far in recovery, right? And, you know, I hear daily from people who are in eating disorder recovery at some stage and are being confronted with their caregiver's fat phobia, you know, and, and looking for help. So it's something we really have to dismantle.
0: What do you say to those people that reach out to you and are experiencing this? within their own treatment center. So here's my treatment team and they're, they're using these, you know, fat phobic terms and, you know, ideas like, no, 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 no we will let you know if it goes too far. What do you tell them to do?
1: Uh, so the first thing I always want to make clear is this is not your fault. It has become your problem. And those are two different things, right? This should not be happening. You shouldn't have to gear up to deal with the fat phobia of your eating disorder team. Like this should never have happened in the first place. And then I asked like what is an option for you? Right? Is it an option to change treatment facilities? You know, is this something you can talk about and then so we, depending on kind of their resources and opportunities because eating disorder treatment is not easy to get. And often there are many constraints. And so it's not as simple as like, just get another treatment team or just go somewhere else, right? So that's not necessarily an option. So then we talk about boundary setting and we talk about, you know, do you want to confront their fat phobia or do you just want to have an internal mantra where you're like, oh, here it goes. Like this is fat phobia and I'm not going to listen to this part. You know, and that's hard to do because the thing that's insidious about your eating disorder is it tells you like every, everybody's wrong when they tell you that you're experiencing disordered eating naturally tries to like hang on to you in that way. And so to say you can question this part while having to really push yourself in these other areas creates real difficulties. One of the things that's such a problem with weight stigma and eating disorders is that, you know, providers at eating disorders need to be absolutely trustworthy. And when they're coming from a place of weight stigma, they're not.
0: I also want to repeat what you said, which is, it's not your fault, although now it has become your problem. And that's, that's a pretty powerful statement. What, what was the most challenging thing getting, a pulling back a little bit from the universal experience, going to your experience, what was the most difficult thing for you within your recovery process? And was it the weight stigma? Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, sure. So my friend's mom, I was always kind of a bigger kid and I didn't get a ton of body shaming because I was a a pretty successful athlete and, you know, pretty confident kid. Uh, But my friend's mom pulled me aside and I'm sure she was very well-intentioned, but she said, you know, you're going to lose weight before uh, college. Like you don't want to go to college fat, do you? And I went from not really thinking about diet and exercise in terms of weight loss to thinking about almost nothing else. You know, and then I was exercising more and more, eating less and less until it became a full-blown eating disorder. And when I think about all the ways that weight stigma perpetuated that, I have never been more praised for my body or work ethic than I was at the absolute worst of my eating disorder. I could barely stand up. I literally collapsed on a treadmill. That's how I got treatment. I collapsed on a treadmill. They took me to the hospital briefly, and that is how I ended up getting involved in treatment right? I could barely stand, but everybody was like, you're so disciplined. You look so amazing, you know? And just like with all weight loss comments, almost everybody gains their weight back. So every one of those compliments became an insult as I gained my weight back. So there was that piece of it. And then of course, like I said, doctors who were, you know, prescribing weight loss to somebody in eating disorder treatment and just the culture, like it's important to understand like weight stigma, fat phobia, that's not in our heads. That's real. That's really happening. It really would be easier if I were a thinner person. And so the thing that helped me, I was, I had started ballroom dancing and I was like coming to a place of body acceptance personally, but I didn't understand it as activism yet. And a judge kind of cornered me against an elevator and I, my walled dress had spaghetti straps. And she said, you know, we have to talk about that waltz dress." And she said, I couldn't stand to look at you. And I was sick. And so I was like, "Do I go off on this person, or just like quote unquote be classy?" And I was just too tired. And so I said, "Okay." And she said it again, like, "I mean, I couldn't stand to look at you." I said, "Okay." And you know, we so we had this little conversation. She finally went away, but it was in that moment because I had done a ton of um, queer and trans activism in college. I'm a queer woman, and but I had never thought of being fat like being queer. Right? Like this is a group of people who are oppressed by an idea. Um, and so in that moment, I realized like I wanted to be a fat dancer. I was going to have to be a fat activist to get it done. And that was my own, like how I grew through like sort of that health at every size and then body love and then being an activist was like, oh no, it's not just me. Like this is a re- this is an oppression. And so going back to that idea of it's not your fault, though, it becomes your problem. Like that's the deal with oppression. It's not pretend we can't, you know, oppression doesn't go away because you love your body. Right. The airline is still trying to charge me twice as much as the person next to me for the same trip. You know, I still can't, don't have the same access to clothes. I don't have the same access to medical care. Like these things are real. So then we have to figure out, okay, what am I going to do about that? But that kernel of it for me was like in my own personal journey, like, oh no, this is real. And just like, I don't think the solution to homophobia is me being straight. I don't think the solution to fat phobia is me trying to be thin. I think it's dismantling fat phobia. And so that's what I'm going to do. I think I'm
0: just in utter shock that somebody said that, I, I, I'm, I'm actually losing my words right now, which by the way, Reagan, never happens, that somebody, as my people say, had the chutzpah to walk up to you, to anybody, any human being that is a soul and say, the way you look disgusts me is, I, I don't have words to that. Who, who are these people? And I'm asking that rhetorically, like, who are these people?
1: Yeah, it was, it was very bizarre. It's one of the situations where you're like, is this really happening? Like, am I on candid camera? Am I being punked? No, this is real. And it turns out she was doing this to a lot of people. And how the conversation ended, she said, you know, I talked to your coach and he said I could talk to you. And I was like, well, I'm 30, so you don't have to ask permission to talk to me. And I was done at that point. I said, you know, I probably won't choose to change the dress, but I appreciate you taking the time to tell me it's such a problem for you. And what I realized at some point in that conversation, she like put her finger in my face and like veins bulging and spittle flying or like that might not have happened. That might not be, that might be my recollection, but like she put her finger on my face and she said, you have no business wearing spaghetti straps and she was so angry and I was like "Bing, this isn't about me right nobody gets that mad about spaghetti straps this is about her and like she's trying to give me her body image issues but like I want an instant pot for Christmas so I'm not gonna take that right she's gonna have to take that gift back um but it turns out she was doing it to lots of people like that's who she thought she was like the honest person who told you like that your body is so terrible that you should cover your arms and um and so what happened was people were so ashamed that they wouldn't say anything about it. Well, I don't know how much you know me by this podcast, but I told everyone I ever met, right? I immediately was, to, I told everybody on the elevator, like, can you believe this should just happen to me? And so because people liked me, like I was, you know, I had, come into ballroom dancing, country-western ballroom dancing with a background in dancing. So while a lot of newcomers dance like really nervous, which is completely reasonable, I like dance, as winking, doing big arms. And so like people liked me. And so people were like, do you want us to start a petition to make or not a judge? Like, what do you want to happen? And And then people started to come up to me and say, she did it to me too. And that's why I wear this costume or don't wear this costume anymore. It's, you know, it, I can't do um, jive anymore. Somebody told me because I feel myself jiggle, and all I can think about is her talking to me. So, like, she was ruining lives. This woman, and I was like, not mine. Like, suck it. And so, we did. My dance teacher and I for nationals that year did a. There was a special category for West Coast Swing, and we did a routine to bet Midler's "I'm Beautiful." Damn it, in a spaghetti strap uh, costume. It was, and we put it together in like two hours. We had no time. I can't believe we got it done. But I was like, this is, I went to him and I was like, this is what I want to do. And he's like, yes, we can do that. Like I'll, whatever. And so like he did the choreography and stuff, but it was, you know, it's just one microcosm of the example of what people think it's okay to tell you when you're fat, right? They think it's fine and helpful. And like, they think of themselves as like this, you know, special truth teller who like, maybe no one's ever told you that we think fat is bad. Maybe you, I'm I'm sure I'm the first person who's ever given you this information. So like, thank me for that. What
0: do you say, or what do you think? I, I have clients and I can, I can see them right now that no matter, first of all, you know, if I talk about you know, this is a cultural problem. This is not a you problem. You know, it's, I, by the way, Reagan, I can say all the right things. You can say all the right things. Deb can say all the right things. But then, but they say to me, I don't wanna, I don't, I don't wanna be an activist. I don't want to, I actually want the thin body. I don't want to accept this body. What do you say to people when they say that to you?
1: I mean, it's so hard, right? Because it makes sense, right? I want to move myself out of the suppressed group is not an unreasonable thing to think, you know? So then we have to look at like, okay, realistically, you're allowed to do whatever you want with your body, right? I take a pretty extreme view of body autonomy. So you're allowed to do whatever you want with your body, but let's look at the likely results. So what all the research tells us is that um, nearly every uh, weight loss attempt ends in failure, right? 95 to 98% of people regain all their weight within two to five years. And up to 66% of those people gain back more weight than they lost. So the most likely outcome of this diet you're thinking about going on is that you will end up bigger than you started. So the first and foremost, if you decide to do it, if that outcome happens, please understand that's not your fault. That's what every piece of research said would happen. If you've already tried to diet, which you probably have, and it didn't work for you, then you're probably never going to succeed, right? The chances don't get better over repeated attempts. You know, there are outliers who succeed. And what happens is the diet industry, I mean, the diet industry in 2012 made $20 billion. In 2018, they made $72 billion. That $52 billion is an amount of money that we can't conceptualize. Like we can't understand, like it's end world hunger for a year kind of money. And so the way they do that is they take responsibility for the first part of the biological response when short term we lose a little weight and then they get people to blame others and ourselves for the second part of the biological response when we gain the weight back, right? Because our bodies don't understand that they'd be more socially acceptable if they were smaller. And so they don't understand that they're hunger, they're hungry. They're sending us all the food signals, and we're like, nope, no food for you. So they're like, clearly there's a famine, right? And then we get on a treadmill and they're like, oh, famine, and we're running from bears. Like, this is no good at all. I have systems for this. And so they become, they change at a biological level to be like weight gaining, weight maintaining machines. And there's nothing wrong with weight gain. There's nothing wrong with being bigger. That's not the issue. The issue is the lie that doing this, um, intentional weight loss thing is going to move you out of an oppressed group because there's almost no chance of that happening so once we understand that and to me that's the first part like nobody has to be an activist you can be fat and just try to live your best life without doing activism and you can there's lots of levels of activism i my i do a monthly workshop and this month i'm talking about like activism as a self-care practice right so that like when something happens i say something and then i never go back to that conversation Right. I don't need to argue with trolls. I just say, I saw injustice. I did something about it. Success. Boom. You know, I set a boundary with my family and then we just don't talk about that. Right. That's it. So like, I, I make sure people know that there are options in terms of like the idea of activism. Cause people, a lot of people think like you're either like in a bikini protesting in the street a la Marilyn one, or like you're dieting. Right. And there's so much in between, but for me, it was, doing the research. And I think part of that, again, that privilege is that I had the ability and the education to do that research. So it's not like I think dieting is likely to not be successful. I know it. I know it. I read all the research. When I tell a doctor, I'll do it if you show me a single study where a majority of people have succeeded, I know they don't have a study right? I know I'm, I'm winning that fight. And so that's really helpful to me. But once I took weight loss off the table, look, I'm not going to be a thin person, right? And for me, comparing oppressions is tricky, but for me as a queer and fat person, it's the same like if I take off the table that I could somehow become straight, what's left? And then I get to make choices from that group of things until I take the idea that I could be a thin person off the table. Or that I'm not like with surgeries willing to risk my life and quality of life. Okay, so that's off the table for me. Now, what options am I choosing from? That to me is where the, the empowerment starts is just making those choices from the, the list of possibilities instead of the list of things that probably aren't going to happen. You know, I'd like to be taller too. I can't reach a lot of stuff, but I'm not going to like try to stretch myself out. So like I'm going to buy a reachy tool and a stepladder. I'm choosing from the list of options that are possible.
0: Hmm. You know, I I didn't think I was going to go into this question, but it just there's something that made me think of it when you said um, talked about surgery. I do have clients who have said I have tried everything. I've tried every program, weight loss, lifestyle change. I'm just I'm gonna do the surgery. I'm gonna have bariatric or bypass surgery. I don't think people truly know what the life is like what the medical complications leading up to death is there anything you could explain that, that you could just enlighten people on it's not just i'm going to go in like you said what did you say amputate my stomach and then voila life is good can you speak to the to the se-
1: severe
0: severe medical complications?
1: Yeah. So first of all, let's be realistic about the surgery. What it does is it takes a healthy digestive system and it creates a disease state in order to force starvation, in order to force the body to consume itself to become smaller. That's what the surgery is. Uh, And it came from uh, a surgery that was done, you know, people needed it. It was medically necessary. And then it turned out they lost a bunch of weight. So they were like, maybe we give it to fat people for whom it isn't medically necessary. So like my digestive system works great. What we're going to do is mutilate it so it doesn't. And that's going to solve your problems. So that is what the surgery is. And it is based on the idea that being fat is so bad that it's worth dying or ruining your quality of life to become thin. That is the medical point of view that allows this to be an ethical, quote unquote, ethical practice. And so there are three groups of people who have gone through the surgery. Group one are happy. And they may be happy because they are in what's called the honeymoon period before the complications start. Or they may be happy because temporarily they've, you know, they've moved themselves out of the oppressed group. And so they're willing to sacrifice anything for that. I talked to somebody who's had seven emergency surgeries and she'll need to have more. And she's like, but I mean, I get to shop at the normal clothing stores. So like, again, this is the effect of fat phobia. You know, the idea that, and again, as Deb Burgard pointed out, they don't ask people like, do you want to mutilate your digestive system or do you want to take one more pill for the rest of your life? Like they don't explain the choice that way. So that's group one, like they're happy. Group two have horrific lifelong side effects and would do literally anything to take back their decision. Literally anything. Some of them are not able to leave their homes. Some of them are having to use a feeding tube. The the complications can be horrific. And group three, die. They may die on the table. They may die a short while afterwards, but they die. And the problem is nobody can tell you which group you're going to be in until you're in it. And there's no going back. And these weight loss surgery centers are are incredibly profitable. And so they do these seminars and they trot out the group one people, right? Who are usually in their first, in that honeymoon period and they're happy and they talk about all the, you know, basically, I move myself out of an oppressed group and it's so great. You never hear from the group two people. You never hear from the friends and family who would do anything to have a fat mom or friend again rather than to have had that, you know, the person... I hear a lot from people who are like, yeah, my mom just wanted... She didn't even want to be thin. She just wanted to fit on a roller coaster. So she had the surgery and she died. You know, right? I'd rather petition the amusement park to fix the roller coaster to fit me. I'd rather do that. But that, you know, again, people get to choose what they want to do with their bodies. But I don't know... And again, this is something else Deb Burgard has talked about. She's, if you don't know Deb Burgard, she is in, an incredible genius and uh, one of my heroes in the movement and helps me all the time with a lot of things. But she talked about like, I'm not sure there is such thing as um, informed consent around this surgery because they're telling you not that it'll solve any health problem necessarily. And by the way, any health problem they're telling you will, it will solve, thin people get this health problem and they are not asked to amputate their stomach to fix it right? There are evidence-based interventions that don't involve weight loss for every health issue. So that's a whole other discussion. But, you know, they're telling you it's not only going to solve or prevent health issues, with, which may or may not be true, but that it's going to, you know, make you a person who, do, who no longer lives in an oppressed group. And they're not telling you very clearly about the downsides up to and including death. It's That industry makes me so angry. Like it can barely like keep It together when I talk about it because they're butchering people and they're making incredible amounts of money to do it and they're patting themselves on the back because they've convinced themselves that being fat is so terrible that, you know, we should surgically induce thinness and that they're doing a a good thing for us instead of being clear that, like, yeah, weight stigma is terrible. And so we as medical providers should be on the front lines of solving it.
0: They're preying on many, many, uh, many fears and vulnerabilities of people, but two in particular, which is I want to fit in, and I think there's a stereotypical way of what it looks like to fit in, and medical fears, which as you were saying, and and I know, these medical fears are not due to weight. So they prey on image and medical, which are two pretty powerful things to
1: combat. Yeah. And they, again, like just like you said with your clients, these folks have typically tried everything, right? If you are someone who's committed to trying to lose weight, your most likely life pattern is an entire life of yo-yo dieting followed by at the end of your life, you'll be fat. Unless, you know, you have an illness that makes you think like that's, that's what the life pattern is. And I talk to people who say, you know, my mom was on her deathbed and she has always been really critical of my health at every size and size acceptance. But she finally said, like, I realized that I spent so much of my life trying to be thin that I wasted it. And I'm glad you're not doing that. Right. So I hear from people who are in that situation. So like that's, but it's a big piece of it. Like, you know, we'll make you fit in and we'll make you healthy, quote unquote healthy. And in addition to the surgery not necessarily curing health issues; it can cause a tremendous number of health issues and difficulties down the road. Um, and by the way, a lot of people gain all their weight back, but they don't gain back like their duodenum, their ability to process nutrients, and so they still have all the health problems that are involved with the surgery, but without you know the promised results at all. Wasn't
0: there somebody now? I forgot that you were in America the Beautiful 2, The Thin Commandments. I completely forgot until I was doing a little bit of research. And um, I can't remember if it was in 1 or 2, but they did follow somebody or in, in like did little snippets about somebody who had had weight loss surgery and like they had lost all their hair, they had not left their house in months because they needed to always be by a bathroom or something like serious
1: serious consequences it's not uncommon at all you know and what they're selling is is not a reality and you have to we have to remember these are for profit Centers. And even if they say they're nonprofit, they're nonprofit, but the people who are running it are making a tremendous amount of money. Right. So even nonprofit within medical care in the United States can be really manipulated. And so that's not uncommon. There are entire groups of people with names like weight loss surgery ruined my life. And again, you don't know if you're going to be in that group until you're in it. So you have to say, like, whatever's going on. So, like, let's say somebody has type 2 diabetes. Right. Rather than working on managing it with medications and, you know, whatever else they're going to use, they say it's worth dying today to have the surgery and have the chance that it will um, go away, which it likely won't. You know, again, a lot of people have a bounce back effect, but it's one of the most common things. Oh, if you have type two diabetes, if you have quote unquote pre-diabetes, which is a made up thing. Which is a whole other conversation, you know, then you should get the surgery. And in fact, like, there's a lower, you know, BMI limit to get you can be at a lighter weight and still get the surgery if you have, you know, any of these health issues. And there's no guarantee that it's gonna solve it. It could make them worse. And you could get a host of other health issues. It's such a, you know, again, I go back to what Deb said about like, you can't really give informed consent to this. And there's no going back. So, like, if you're like, if I can't ride this roller coaster, then I, you know, it's, I'll die. That's the choice you're making when you choose that surgery. And I don't think people are properly informed by healthcare providers about what that means.
0: I also remember hearing you say that you went to a doctor's appointment. And again, forgive me, I'm paraphrasing. I could be getting this wrong, but you went for one thing. like I think you had strep throat and the doctor was like, well, you should lose weight. And you were like, first of all, how is that going to affect my strep throat? And you said, do you say, do you say this to thin people too, when they have strep throat? Tell me, I know I'm, I'm kind of getting this off a little bit, but what was that situation? Cause I thought, God damn it. It's, you can't even go to the doctors, Reagan.
1: Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And this is the thing. Like if you ask a fat person, this happens, we like to call it every doctor's appointment I've ever been at right? Severed limb. Have you tried weight loss, strep throat? I've personally been prescribed weight loss for a broken toe, a separated shoulder, strep throat, like the list goes on. This is the thing. And doctors are trained to do this. Like this is the big problem. They think they're doing you a favor uh, and they're not. Uh, but yeah, so I went in, I had strep throat. I was really sick and they did the little test and they're like, yep, it's strep throat. Doctor, be right in. You know, and he was like, walked. In, the first thing he said was, what are we going to do about your weight? And I was like, I do not have time for this. And so I said, what are we going to do about my strep throat? And he said, you know, well, whatever, you know, you do, you're going to be happier if if you lose 50 pounds. I was like, first of all, are you telling me I have obesity induced strep throat? Also,
0: are you telling me what makes me happy? You're going to be happier
1: if you lose 50 pounds. Yeah. So he said the thing about like, whatever's wrong with you, you'll be happier if you lose 50 pounds. And I, this is not the best answer, but it's what I had on the day. I said, not if I have cancer. And so he literally threw his arms up in the air and said, well, what do you want me to do? And I had my hand on this counter. And so I like hit the counter with every word. And I was like, what do you give thin people with strep throat? And he was like, antibiotics. And what I wanted to say was like, oh, let's have some of those. Like on the off chance that they also cure strep throat in fat people. But what I actually said was just antibiotics now, you know, and I left, but like, you shouldn't have to gear up for, you know, I teach these workshops on like dealing with that phobia at the doctor's office and it's information that is helpful. But the whole time I'm just like, this shouldn't happen. You have, it's hard enough, like, especially in the United States to get to be able to afford health care, get time off work, get child care, get transportation. Now you get there and the doctor can't even, you know, they only get five minutes with you. And instead of focusing on the severed arm you're holding, they want to talk about a diet. It's it's malpractice. It's unethical. It's inexcusable. And it happens every single day.
0: Also, studies are not done. Studies are typically done on a particular body type. So let's talk about the upcoming vaccine for COVID. Is that being tested on all ranges of bodies? And if it is not, what kind of a health risk is this posing?
1: Thanks for asking about this. So CNN ran a headline that said um, fat people create risk in COVID vaccine. And I was like, oh God. So I read it. And what they're saying is starts out being true. So what happens is in medical research, they don't test things on fat people. And then when they don't work on fat people, they blame fat people for existing. And we're not the only ones, by the way, typically people of color are massively underrepresented. Trans and non-binary people are often not represented at all. Right? So this is a problem. Women are sometimes not represented in studies at all. And then it gets extrapolated. Uh, This is a huge problem within the research community. But yeah, so the flu vaccine, not as effective on fat people. Uh, And not as effective on older people, but they created a solution to that called a super shot vaccine. But with fat people, they literally said, meh. Right? They did nothing. So they've known for a long time that fat people get the flu shot. It's not as effective, but they sort of were fine with us getting the flu and possibly dying. Uh, because we weren't thin people. But now they're worried about it, not because the COVID vaccine, again, isn't. this is a known problem and it's not being solved. So it's not being tested on fat people. And so they're like, well, what if it's the same as the flu vaccine? Then fat people will be more of a danger to thin people. That's what they're worried about. Not that fat people will die because they didn't bother to make a vaccine that works for us, but that because we're more likely to be infected, we will be a risk to thin people. That was the, the thrust of the CNN article. And so this is what's happening And lack of representation within research is a huge um, area of fat phobia within medical care.
0: It's like a, it's like a horror movie. Like, the way it's being presented I want to I want to shift a little bit and I know we're we're pretty much out of time but I do you know we're talking about all of these you know scare tactics that the medical community is saying and you know you 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 know you have to lose weight for this that and the other thing I would like you to talk for a moment about how much your body does for you like by the way, like when, at the very beginning, we were talking about how you do an Ironman and I, like, I, I was an Ironman or a triathlon or both.
1: It's, so I've done triathlons. It's an iron distance triathlon. And to be clear, I have not yet done one. It's been a five-year debacle to try to make this happen. So, um, I, yeah, um, turns out I am not good at triathlon, but, um, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's the deal. I don't want to take credit for something I haven't done, but I'm working on doing an iron distance try.
0: I also want to point out it is not necessary for everybody to say see I am healthy I can do a triathlon I can be a dancer but I just wanted to point out how much it is a myth and and again I say to my clients all the time it is not your job to be the best at like like clients have said to me I I you know do you think I could be an eating disorder therapist when I recover That's not your job. I don't even like, don't worry about it. Let's just get you through. It's the same thing. I'm not saying Reagan, the way to prove stuff is by doing a triathlon. But again, with everything we're saying about what, what medicine is saying towards fat people, I just want them to know there are, I I just, I, I just want them to know how false these claims are. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So I like to try to do ridiculous things with my body and sometimes I succeed and sometimes I fail spectacularly. Right. But it's not, this is not connected to health. Nothing about doing an iron distance triathlon is healthy. And anyone who tells you it is, is lying to you. There's no reason to do this. The number of sports injuries we get, we end up like we got an exoskeleton of uh, Kate, a physio tape. Right. And we're, you know, doing ridiculous like survival types burying food so we can eat it on our, you know, runs. It's not, it's not about health to me. It's about wanting to do like this ridiculous thing. So my thing is I spent a lot of years with a list of things I wanted to try once I was thin. And so at some point I was like, look, what if I just took my fat body out for a spin to see what it can do? And I tried to do all these things on my list and your list may be very, very different. And you know, fine. People say, do you think everyone should do a marathon? I think maybe no one should do one. Like, I think maybe they should stop having them so that we can stop making bad decisions. Right. But, but yeah, your list might be different, but my thing is just like, you know, let's, let's take our fat bodies out for a spin instead of buying into this myth that, you know, we can do it when we're thin. And by the way, there's a lot of thin people who, whatever your sort of athletic level is, there are thin people at that same level. Including if it's like, I would rather shave my head with a cheese grater than exercise. There are thin people living that life too. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a valid choice. So I always want to be really clear about that because I do get used as like a, a, a tool to bash other fat people. Well, she does marathons. Like, so...
0: Reagan, I, I can't even tell you how, first of all, how much I have enjoyed this, this interview and how sad I am that it is going to be coming to an end. I do have one more question for you. But before I ask, is there anything that you want to say that I didn't ask or anything at all?
1: I just want to reiterate again that fat phobia is real it's not our fault, but it becomes our problem. But there are things that we can do and steps that we can take and we shouldn't have to deal with it, but we can. And there's hope and things are slowly but surely changes are happening and shifts are making. So, you know, there's activism going on all the time.
0: Thank you. Thank you for saying that. So Reagan, your final question is, if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in?
1: Anything written by Aaron Sorkin. I love. I'm. I love backstage at stuff. I'd rather. I went to college on an orchestra on a scholarship to play clarinet. Right. I would rather hear a rehearsal than watch the performance. I love backstage. And so much of what he writes is about that. Like I, you know, someday I want to have a little show about like going backstage at whatever, Sonic to see how they make all those drinks in that tiny space, um, you know, the New York Philharmonic, like whatever. So his, and obviously his dialogue is spectacular and his issues in terms of like misogyny and racism that I don't want to erase, but like the shows that he does and the way that he writes and the characters he creates, that is the genre I would choose, the sort of Aaron Sorkin genre.
0: Fantastic. I love it. Again, Reagan, thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. I said it before, your work is so important. And I'm just grateful to get to be a little bit part of it. So thank you. Thank you, Reagan.
0: All right, everyone. That does it for this week's Recovery Bites Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with each and every one of you next week. Okay, stay safe. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts, by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.